Welcome to North Liberty Library's Love, Light, and Lit, the podcast, a series of universal talks gently guided by open hearts and open minds. Listen to ignite the light in you and to appreciate the light in others. Hello, I'm Kelly with North Liberty Library, and I thank you for joining us today on Love, Light, and Lit, the podcast. You can also catch Love, Light, and Lit on Facebook Live every Monday at 12 noon Central. Please be sure to follow North Liberty Library on Facebook to get all notifications. Spring has officially sprung in the Midwest. Although our weather can be unpredictable at best, one thing is certain. Spring is the best season to explore nature and everything our environment has to offer. Luckily for most of us, Finding nature can be as easy as stepping into our own backyards or stopping by the nearest local park or forest reserve. While the nature of beauty is obvious, the educational opportunities provide the most indelible gift of all. Today's guest has the passion and the experience to speak to the intersection between nature and education. Bridie Criswell is a graduate of the University of Iowa with a BA in psychology and an MA in education. In addition, she obtained a graduate degree in applied behavior analysis from Florida Tech with national board certification. She has over 20 years of combined experience as both a teacher and behavior analyst working in both public and private settings. Bridie has a passion for outdoor education, gardening, and prairie restoration. She opened The Good Earth in August, 2017 with a mission to build a school community where children and families can learn, grow, and thrive. Today, Bridie is going to share why environmental education is her true calling and ways families can enjoy more education in the outdoors. Welcome, Bridie. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Kelly. Hello. And I just really appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk about what I love best. Absolutely. It is so good to have you on. First, let's start off by telling us a bit more about how nature exploration became a passion for you. Well, to do this, I'm going to go back in time 40 plus years ago, not to age myself, but (laughs) we got to go back to my childhood and my mother. My mother was always one to be very curious about the natural environment. And we grew up in Minnesota and we would often take long walks, whether it was in the neighborhood and even just the neighborhood in the city of St. Paul or up north in the lake areas up in northern Minnesota. And what I remember most from that and what I continue to hold with me today, and I also do this with the students here, is slow down in nature and take our time. And my mother would walk alongside of me and she would find the most tiny little seed pod or a little insect, or maybe it was a great big oak tree that had unusual branches. And she would just comment and say, wow, you know, just look at this. Look at how interesting and amazing it is. The texture, the smell, the way that it was positioned in the environment and everything from the most beautiful wildflower to honest to goodness, a dead animal on the path. 
and would become an area of focus and curiosity and interest. And she taught me through modeling, not be afraid of nature, not be afraid to get dirty, not to be afraid of the creatures that inhabit the natural world, the insects, the worms, the caterpillars, the birds, everything. And my mother was born in the Ukraine and immigrated to the United States. And we lived right alongside my grandparents who were Ukrainian and they didn't speak much English at all. But one thing that my mother's father, my grandfather always did as well was to pull us children into the garden. And I remember spending long days in the garden and watching him prune the tomato plants and helping him pick the vegetables and helping my grandmother prepare the foods. And my grandfather was always taking in injured animals or lost animals. We had many, many baby birds that would have suffered a worse fate on the road or whatever. And I'll never forget one time he brought home this baby Robin and it was tiny and helpless. Its eyes weren't even open and we fed it. We learned about it. We took care of it. And it grew to a mature Robin and he would sit on our shoulders and our heads. And when we'd go outside, he would come and fly down and visit us. And one time the postman came to look at the mail and got a very big surprise from Mr. Fuzzywig, the Robin, you know, you wouldn't expect a Robin to come land on your shoulder, but things like that, where I just think that any barriers that I might've had, had I not been exposed to some of those things, we're just removed and feeling that connection with the natural world around me has always been a part of my life. Fast forward to my teaching career when I was first hired in Iowa City, it was my second teaching job, and they had decided to start a behavior program at Roosevelt, the former Roosevelt Elementary. It's no longer, but behind my classroom there, I had the behavior program. Behind my classroom, there was the Roosevelt Ravine. And so my door opened up, it was a portable. And then we had the whole forest back there. And any of the kids I worked with struggled with so many things, whether it be learning disabilities or trauma or ADHD or autism, or just you name it, that forest became our safe place. And we spent a lot of time down there. We went on walks, we explored, we built forts, we cleaned the ravine, we took care of it, we planted things there, we repaired the stair, we did so many projects there, and it just became a place of solitude and restoration. It sounds like even from your childhood, nature began as an immersive experience for you, but then it slowly morphed into a more of an emotional experience. And that's something that you took in to adulthood as well. Is that a safe characterization? Yeah, I don't think I could shake it if I tried, honestly. That's just in my blood and in my heart now. I mean, if I don't have my outdoor time, if I don't have time out in nature, I feel it and it does not feel good. And there's been many times here during the school day where we decide, okay, you know what? We've gotten our hard studies done or hard work done. We're going to spend the rest of the day down in the Creek or in the woods or wherever. And oftentimes the staff and I will look at each other and kind of collectively sigh and say, wow, we really needed this. We didn't know we needed this, but all of us, the children, the adults included, we really needed this. And this feels really great. And all your stresses really decrease. And that's pretty well supported in a lot of research too, that's been done on nature-based play or education or just spending time in greener spaces is reduction of anxiety and things. So I definitely see that here as well. 
And I think that what's so unique about what you do is because of your professional background, both your education and your professional experience, even before you opened The Good Earth, was primarily in the fields of psychology and behavioral studies. And I think you're touching on that a bit already, but can you explain, is there a connection between your studies and the work that you do in natural education? And if so, how do you feel that your coursework fuels your current work? I continue to learn every day, but absolutely I draw from a lot of that. Um, First and foremost being that learning, I truly believe, from not just my studies, but also from my experiences, it's best achieved when all of our basic human needs are met. So you have physical needs and social emotional needs, and all of us as humans have those and children are certainly no different, you know, physical needs, such as hunger, diet, sleep, your body systems that comes into play in this kind of an educational experience because of the amount of physical exercise that the children get without it being a thing, you know, it's, we're not going out to exercise for 30 minutes. They're engaged in free play Mm -hmm. and free play for them means we as adults aren't structuring their play for them. We're not saying, here's what you have to do and where your boundaries are. You're giving them the freedom. They have freedom. Enjoy nature right in front of them. Yes. And so what are they doing? They're running, they're climbing, they're jumping, they're feeling out their own physical boundaries and taking risks in pretty healthy ways. Our kids here, I would have to say are extremely fit. I've had many parents report to me. We just went to their physical and the doctor couldn't believe like, all. (laughs) they're just very fit. And that's supported in broader scope research as well, where they've looked at blacktop play versus nature play. Same groups of kids, same amount of time. And when they tested for motor fitness, those kids that were climbing the rocks and running up and down the hills and climbing trees tested much better in motor fitness, especially balance and agility. Mm-hmm. And I definitely see that with the children here and my own children as they go into the world of, you know, organized sports and things like that. It just seems very natural for them. I think that there's something, because I have two children as well, and there's just something about sending kids off even to the park, Mm -hmm. especially if it's a park that doesn't have a playground where they have to Mm -hmm. use their imagination Mm -hmm. and the nature in front of them to play. I always feel like our kids feel a little bit more freer when we're in a real park with no playground, whereas Mm -hmm. at the playground, okay, I have to go on the swings. I have to do this. I have to do that. It's just another list of things that they have to do. But when they're in a free open space of nature, there's kind of that freedom that comes out. Do you find that along with physical agility, that there's a mental health balance that happens with children when they're in play in nature? Absolutely. Aside from the benefits of building that creativity and imagination, which is absolutely incredible and so crucial for future academic learning as they get into, you know, their maths and sciences, all of that, it just is so important. But the emotional health part of it, what I notice here is when we do sit down for our focused learning or we're doing a group and learning, we were learning some algebra today, they are so much better able to settle in and focus. Our kids have really great focus because they've spent the last hour and a half running and playing and talking and creating and having that autonomy. Yeah. Autonomy, that goes along with that emotional health, right? If I'm able to choose what I do 
make the rules with my peers, agree to changes, negotiate. The social aspects of mental health are increased with that type of play. Big time. And they're not without support. So I mean, we're definitely there to coach them if needed and help them negotiate conflicts and things when they need it. But most of the time now they don't. And many of these kids have been with me now for a couple of years. And so they could probably do hostage negotiations effectively. I'm thinking <laughs> they are really very good and they're very able to communicate their emotions, how someone else's actions affected them, but they do it in a very positive way. And always working towards compromise and being heard. Those are skills that I think children need to learn as early as possible. So often, you know, when you think about how we grew up, because we're in the same generation, we're in our 40s. I mean, we didn't understand the concept of debate or discussion or conflict from an educational perspective until maybe high school when you had debate team and student government. But there are ways to introduce those aspects of socialization through nature. We learned it in our backyards because our parents were not involved necessarily sitting right there and listening to everything we said or did, but we were able to learn that by doing. And that's what I see the kids doing here. And when you think about Oh, things such as, you know, childhood obesity and Mm -hmm. just that physical part of it. Why is that? Well, one of the factors we think is that sedentary lifestyle and that there's much more screen time now and not that screen time is all bad. It's just it so can many be very things. pervasive yeah. in preventing physical activity. I mean, I have a tween and a teen at home, and I know exactly that, you know, unless we go out as a group together to go outside, very rarely will they say, I want to go outside, especially mm-hmm. on a weekend when they're trying to distress from school. So having all of those different outlets where kids can be entertained, it can inhibit natural play and play in nature. I agree. And there's some age issues with that too. I also have a teen and a tween. And when they get into some of those teen years, I'm finding that that is more preferred right now, but I know that they will come back to that and they do and are ready to jump right back in and climb a tree, or maybe it's not climbing a tree when they're 17, but it might be helping to advocate to save a local natural space because they've lived it and they've had such a relationship with it. Right. That That then it becomes personal. It's a more intimate relationship that they have with nature. And thinking about just psychiatric conditions, really with children, there was a study in 2003 that they did and they looked at the previous five years and the prescriptions for antidepressants in children nearly doubled in just that short amount of time. And the biggest increase was among preschool children. And that could be for various reasons. Of course, there's other factors like, you know, they have better screeners or they're doing more testing, but also what they've noticed is that there's a lot more technology. Now there's a lot more distracted parenting. There's a lot more screen time. Not that that is the only thing, but there's much less time than. And family members are very siloed. I've been seeing this in my home too. The older children, the more they want their own space their own sanctuary, which is absolutely healthy. Mm -hmm. But again, that can also be a factor in inhibiting, you know, time outside and time with nature. I think nature as a therapy or a form of therapy is often overlooked because it's so ambiguous, right? We say nature, well, that can mean so many different things, right? But there's been so many studies that support that stress reduction in both children and adults after spending time out in nature, 
is really beneficial. So yeah, I think there's so many layers there. And I love to sit back out there every day when they are engaged in free play. And we have kids aged four all the way up to age nine right Mm -hmm. now. So up through third grade. And what I see is this active, 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 joyful, bursting with energy, almost the entire time. Uh And when we come back to our learning space, our indoor space, everyone's sweaty, everyone's happy. Uh And everything feels a little lighter. Yes. And they all settle in and they're ready to learn things that, you know, are probably beyond whatever grade level they might have at this point, because they focus so much better and we're able to accomplish so much more in those academic realms because they've had their needs met. They need that much play. They need to run around and do that. That is not something that we're giving them. That's just something that they have to have it for their development. Yeah. I think that what you're doing at the good earth is so beneficial. I want to know a little bit more about how the good earth came to be. So tell me a bit about how the idea of the good earth as an organization sparked for you. Back in 2017, I was working for the local school district and I was experiencing really being on the receiving end of some decisions being made for kids with mental health issues that went against everything that I knew to be well and good for them. Um, And the support was waning while the demands were increasing. And that's been a story in education for a long time. And many, many amazing teachers experienced that. But when I knew it was time to resign, I knew in, in that moment that I wasn't going to be able to fix it. And I wanted to fix it so badly. I was not doing myself a favor trying, you know, so hard every single day. I wanted to do something different where I had more autonomy and I was able to make decisions based on my experience and my training on my own. So I actually had resigned and then set out to open a BCBA practice, a behavior analysis office of my own. Mm-hmm. I had secured the LLC. I was looking into properties to rent. We were living in Coralville. And my husband just happened to say, hey, I just saw this property online. And I was like, I'm about to open this business. I don't want to move on top of it. That's too much. Mm-hmm. He said, just look. And it was an aerial view from a drone of the property. And I just said, we got to go look now. Mm -hmm. We need to go to this place. And we came out the very next day. And it was a cold, rainy day in April and just about 12 acres. And it's hills and valley and stream and field. It's just beautiful. And I walked out in the middle of that field and the poor realtor in his fancy shoes and his white <laughs> coat he was coming out there. Oh, it's they so didn't dress well for that showing. <laughs> but he was all, you know, all smiles. It's okay. And I just looked at my husband, Brent, and I said, this is our classroom. This is where I'm going to teach. Like, this is what I want to do. This mm. has to happen. I just knew it. And it all happened very quickly. We sold our home right away and offer was accepted right away. And it was a really magical thing that happened and a lot of renovation, a lot of work to be done here. We were still doing it, but we worked really, really hard. And I opened that fall of 2017 with younger kids. So most of them were age two. So I was under the DHS umbrella at that time because Mm -hmm. I was sort of in transition and we weren't ready to open a full-on school quite yet. But I will say after five years, many of those kids are still with me and they're second graders now. And it is absolutely incredible. Now I have to ask when you saw the aerial view and then you visited the property, what was it about the nature 
that really drew you in? It was to me like a diamond in the rough. I could see the sculpture of the landscape. I mean, we have just rolling hills here and standing on top of the hill where the farm and the house is, you can see just the whole valley around and big, big oak trees. One that we estimate now is about four to 500 years old, just beautiful, beautiful. And it seemed very untouched. As far as we know, it's never been plowed. It had been seeded for pasture and there've been pasture animals on the upper part. But down in the valley where it's more on a floodplain by the creek, it is absolutely beautiful. And these Mm. big old river birch trees. And when we first came in the aerial view, it was very overgrown. So a lot of invasive plants and things had taken over a lot of the areas. And I just wanted to peel back some of those layers and see. And it's so close to what I think it might've been like 200 years ago, you know, in some of those spaces where it is just absolutely pure and so beautiful. So one of our other missions out here is restoration. So we've been doing so much clearing. A lot of it's blood, sweat, and tears, just Brent and I and the kids and friends and family that come and help and the school kids and restoring the pasture land to native prairie. And every year it gets more beautiful and more beautiful. We have more native flowers and grasses that we start from seed ourselves and plug out in the prairie and take care of. And the kids are with us every step of the way. You started in 2017. So then three years later, we enter the pandemic. What did teaching and your curriculum in nature look like during the pandemic? You know, aside from the initial panic, when we all first found out, we did close for about a month. We didn't know what was going on, just like everybody else. But then reopened and stayed open. For us, very little changed other than up until very recently, we'd been masking indoors and for a while outdoors when it was at you know the height of the pandemic. But other than that, our lives and our education has resumed as it always has. And do you think that it was helpful because a lot of your class time or a portion of your class time was outdoors? Yes. And it continues to be. So we felt much more comfortable being outdoors and not so much in enclosed spaces. And when we were in enclosed spaces, we worked really hard to break those groups up smaller. So there's a lot of adjusting that we had to do in order to make sure we were as safe as we possibly could be. However, things stayed pretty normal for the kids that come here. So there wasn't too much of a shift or change. I feel like for them, other than the masking and, you know, learning a little more about pandemics. Yeah. We read fever, a book about yellow fever in Philadelphia. It's historical fiction, but they could identify it with so much of that because it mirrored so much of what they were seeing and hearing and experiencing with the pandemic here. How involved are parents in curriculum with kids and input and feedback into what Good Earth offers? You know, initially upon registering, they usually come and tour and I'll talk with them for at least an hour or two, sometimes more. We tour the entire property. They'll bring their kids to hike and play in the creek and ask all the questions they need to ask. So they have a pretty good idea of what a typical day might look like here. And then our door really is always open to parents. So I have several parents that come and volunteer or they'll come in and read with kids or they'll just come and help out or clean or whatever it is they want to do or can do. And then honestly, I try to 
share as much as I humanly possibly can as far as what we're doing, what we're studying, what topics in each area through not only newsletters, but I do regular posts on our public page. And then through email, I'll send out lots of summary of what we've learned and what we've been up to. So um, yeah, it's a wide range. We do a lot of things. Is there a reason why you centered on that specific age group nine and under? Well, right now it's just because that's the kids that we have registered. So the kids that were younger from previous years, most of them have stayed. And so we're planning on continuing. So we'll have fourth graders, third graders next year, Mm -hmm. a bunch of first graders, a couple second graders, and a handful of pre-K students that, you know, some will go on to traditional settings, which is, is great, whatever works best for their family. And many will stay on because I think the parents see the benefits as well. And some kids who have been back and forth, my own children, my daughter was here, she's in fifth grade now and chose to go back to public. And I'm all for it. If it's a good fit and it is for her, she was with us two years prior Mm -hmm. and she was so nervous going back. She thought I'm going to be so behind mom. And I said, honey, you're not. And she ended up being head in everything. Yeah. (laughs) but was so worried, but that's normal, I suppose. And then my eldest son goes to Scattergood, which we absolutely Mm -hmm. love for him. It's a great fit for him. And we're fortunately privileged enough to be able to do that. And they've been so accommodating to get him there. And then my youngest, he will be a third grader next year. And he's been with me since he was three and Mm -hmm. did a little bit of public school right at the beginning of kindergarten. And it was not the best fit for him. A lot of anxiety, a lot of behavior, things happening and being in the public schools and being the person that was called to those kinds of situations, totally know what he was experiencing. And I couldn't do it for him. And that's very traumatic and stressful. Yeah. I think that's what makes your perspective so unique because you have this extensive background in education and then you have this passion for nature. So the good earth really encompasses, I think, the intersection between those two for you. Now, in addition to the classes offered at the Good Earth, what are some activities that parents, guardians, and fellow educators can do to get the children in their lives more engaged in nature? It's so simple, I think, at the most basic level. Something as simple as getting an old sheet of plywood and putting it out in the grass or in a ditch or wherever you don't want to kill your grass, I guess, but anywhere that you can do it, even just on bare soil and give it a couple of days, go out and lift it up and see what there is to see, especially in the late spring, early summer, you'll find snakes. If you don't have a snake phobia, I know some people do so many different little critters and creatures, and then stopping and taking a close, close look at just one little patch and the kids, it blows their mind. Even the kids that have seen it every time, just today, we have boards out in the field. We call them our snake boards because we like to go check under them in the summertime for snakes. And it's really fun to see the different kinds, but we did it today. We lifted up one of the snake boards and there probably was, I would say at least 500 to a thousand roly polies all over the top of the board. And we didn't even see it at first. Then one of the kids said, Oh, look. And here they were, they were just covered. And then there was one that was just a tiny larva. Like it was in the larva stage still, which Mm -hmm. I'd never seen before. It was pink. It was so cool. And we studied that for a while and talked about it. And it's not me standing there teaching them about the bugs. 
the experience it's just, itself. Wow. Yeah. Yes, that's all you need. And then they lead with their curiosity, their questions, and their natural desire to learn because mm. all of the children have that. When we have camps in the summer out here, oftentimes the kids will just come for a week and they usually takes, we call it the three day immersion, basically mm-hmm. by Wednesday of that week, they almost always start to turn. So the first couple of days they're hesitant. They don't know what to do. We'll have open spaces of free play time or exploration, and they'll be waiting for someone to tell them what to do. They just seem kind of lost. But by day three, they have become a new child in this environment. And you see them opening up and exploring and loving it so much. There's always tears on the last day or many times parents will say, can we just please get him in one more week? It's like a rebirth almost for some kids because they really don't spend a whole lot of time outside. They spend most of their time in a classroom being told what to do. And then they go home and then they're told additional things to do. And then they rinse, wash and repeat that the next day. So those first couple of days at camp, you can see they're bringing those experiences into that space and they're waiting for direction. They're waiting to be led. And then they realize what should be leading them, as you said previously, is their curiosity about the nature around them. I have a great example with the kids here. Last week, I was walking with the preschoolers and we were walking along the bank of the creek, just going wherever we felt they were leading, wherever they wanted to go. And there's many little deer trails that veer off into the woods and they decided to go this direction and we're going down the path. And suddenly one of my little students, she ran ahead on the path and I didn't tell her to stop. I didn't know where she was going, but I trusted her. And that's what those kids feel too. I feel like by day three, whoa, wait a minute. I can be trusted to make decisions on my own. It's an empowerment. My own. It's really, really empowering. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But she ended up and I heard in the screech and we ran up and here she had discovered this entire deer skeleton laying right there on the path. Oh wow! And it was the coolest thing. And then as we looked closer, there were these beetles that were, and this sounds kind of gross, but it was so cool that were crawling around on the skull and inside and they're carrion beetles. I knew that from just previous findings and we've actually tried to trap carrion beetles at the school. And so they knew too, and there they were and they're decomposers and the kids know that they're decomposers. And we talked about it. We studied them. We watched them. They're beautiful colors, wow. but they're so important to the ecosystem because if we didn't have them, We'd have carcasses all over the place, you know. And telling children that information, it kind of takes kind of the creep factor out of it. It takes the scariness out of it because they understand that this is a part of the ecosystem. And these very small beetles are part of a larger environment. Yes. And that they have a role and showing children that every part of nature has a role in our ecosystem. And by empowering them with that knowledge makes them more engaged in nature. Absolutely. And it translates to what we do as a team here at the school. Everybody has a purpose, a value and a role to play whether it's a crew job that you have for that week or whether it's how you treat and speak with each other and how you listen, we all have an important role to play and we are part of this ecosystem. And so, you know, we talk a lot about weak links in the chain and we're not going to be that weak link because we're going to play our roles and we're going to play them the best that we can Mm -hmm. taking care of our earth, learning about all aspects of it 
in order to protect it. You can't advocate for something you don't understand and you don't Mm. know. And this earth and the natural world around us is absolutely magnificent, incredible, so many layers and so many ecosystem microsystems all around us. And it's absolutely fascinating. And to miss out on that, I think is to miss out on a very crucial part of what it means to be alive on this planet. And I'm afraid that, you know, so many kids are missing that they might watch a great video on birds, but have they gone out and sat and watched and cataloged birds? birds. Yes. And actual birds birds in the sky, feeding in trees. Yes. Yes. And so honestly, for parents at home, there's this little book. It's just about this big. It's called birds of Iowa. And every page has a colorful picture of different birds of Iowa. And my son, my eldest, when he was two, became obsessed with that book. And I've had many kids since become absolutely transfixed by it. And what they do is when they find one of those birds, they love to name it. They want to learn what its name is. Mm -hmm. And then they put a little check mark on the page. Something about that. It's kind of a magical thing to watch and that connection. And that is the exact connection between nature and education, applying what's in the book to Mm -hmm. what's going on in the world. And the world right around them. It's pretty incredible. So yes, I think it's very important. My dream and my wish is to be able to make programs like ours, ours included, more accessible to all kids. And we have been in the works for a while now. It's just keep working on it to get nonprofit status. So we want to be a 501c3. We want to be able to open up scholarship for kids and provide this opportunity for more. We can only take so many, you know, I don't want to be a big thing. I'd like to keep it small, but I also would like to encourage and network with others in the area that are doing similar work so that there are more opportunities for kids to have this, whether it's through camp or educating families or giving simple ideas of things you can do just to get the children engaged Mm -hmm. in the natural world around them. Starting young absolutely is key, but it's not too late if you're child is older. There's a number of great camps in the area from Camp Wapsi to, of course, the Good Earth Camps. We're full, but there's others to the University of Iowa Wildlife Camps. There's many others in the area. And we are so lucky to be right here in this location. We have great parks around us, McBride, the Raptor Center. If you've never visited the Raptor Center with your kids, it's a great short hike and you get to see owls and hawks and read their stories about how they've been rehabilitated, but they can't be released because they've been imprinted and things. And then you get to see the lake and walk out by the lake and the cliff that juts out. And the kids just love that finding fossils and throwing rocks in the water and just getting out there. Cause it's right at our back door. We have beautiful spaces around us. So I say, don't be afraid, just get out there. And there's many programs. Kent Park is a wonderful park to visit. We're going to go out and do a bird banding with them next month, which is going to be super fun. So yeah, we get to hold the birds and see them collect the data and do the tagging and all of that. Monarch caterpillars. If anybody wants to get started having a monarch with some milkweed, they can email me because we always have tons of monarch caterpillars that we raise in a more of a sheltered Wow. Environment. And then we released the butterflies. This last year was the first year we tagged them. So we got to tag them and record them and put them in the database. So that was really fun. Mm -hmm. There's so many little opportunities like that free and 
so beneficial. Yes. You know, I think what you're offering through the Good Earth and all of the resources that you just named, I know folks in our audience who are planning summer vacations, who are planning, you know, day trips, summer getaways over these next summer months have walked away with some great, great ideas. Righty, you know, thank you for joining us today. Again, I know our audience gained some great information here about nature and education. Can you please tell our listeners where we can learn more about the Good Earth and the work that you do? Sure, absolutely. Our website is www.thegoodearth.com. And then we have a Facebook page that is pretty active, the Good Earth Nature-Based Education. We do dabble a little bit in other social media, but honestly, like I'm outside so much half the time, I can't yeah. find my phone. <laughs> That's <laughs> no, not a okay. bad problem to have. I'm not really techy, but if they want to learn more from our website or sending an email to myself at Bridie at the Earth or my husband Brent at the Earth. While our camps are full this summer, other opportunities will come up. We've had yoga classes out here. We're toying with some ideas and doing some theater out here for kids outdoors and the sky's the limit. So, and we're always open to a tour and a conversation. So I think I have one space open, one space for school in the fall. So if anyone's (laughs) interested. It's going to go, we haven't advertised even, and that's really comforting and validating to me to know that we are doing good work. You are doing great work. You are offering a very unique service and perspective for children to engage nature through their education that I don't think you see reflected in traditional school systems. So I think that's great. We will certainly leave all of your social media as well as your website in the show notes. And I'm just so happy that you were able to talk with us about the Good Earth Bridie. Thank you so, so very much. Thank you for letting me talk about my dream school. Great. This is Kelly, and this has been Love, Light, and Lit, the podcast presented by the North Liberty Library. Today, we talked with Bridie Criswell about the importance of environmental education for the whole family. Check out the show notes from today's episode to find out more about her work and resources. And also, please visit our website at northlibertylibrary.org for additional programming and services. Thanks for listening.